spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Mean O Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome back, welcome back to another wonderful episode of Black Arm of the Law. I'm your host, and I'm only Carl Anthony Payne. Um, today, today is a special day because we are uh, we are going to have the OGs on the show today. We're going to have my OGs on the show today, Mr. George Graves and Mr. Donald. Taylor. Let's jump into it. Let's do a little recap. First of all, Donald, how long were you with the Bureau? About 25 years. 25 years with the Bureau. What was your specialty there? A little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked a lot of white collar crimes, a lot of organized mm-hmm. crime. Uh, uh, after leaving the field, well, I was in for uh, eight years and a sniper for six of those years. So I worked a lot of high risk uh, arrest type situations, their high profile cases, as well as some high end, uh, cool, uh, political investigations there, uh, in the, which is, I mean, that's a political hotbed. Hmm. And then going down the, uh, <laughs> to put it nicely, to, right? Yeah. And then going down the headquarters, a little bit of everything. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I, I worked a lot of white collar crimes, uh, a lot of organized crime. Uh, uh, after leaving the field, well, I was on a SWAT team for uh, eight years and a sniper for six of those years. So I worked a lot of high risk, uh, arrest type situations, their high profile cases, as well as some high end, uh, political, uh, political investigations there uh, in New Jersey, which is, as we know, is a political hotbed. And then going down to the, uh, Doing, yeah, and then going down to headquarters, I was uh, one of the uh, legacy supervisors of the uh, National Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was comprised of uh, 50 agencies, the federal, state, local, government, rail police, you name it, they were there. Uh, military was, just, was a huge component of, of different ones. This was post 9-11. So uh, a lot of that information sharing uh, took place in, in those rooms. All right. And uh, George? How long were you with the Bureau? Just to recap. Well, I was, uh, my career spent 24 years. I uh, spent about 15 and a half of those years in, in the Northfield office, working primarily white collar crime. In fact, Donna and I worked in the same squad for a while. And, um, but I worked, uh, um, you know, when you're an agent, you got to work just about everything. So, you know, I, I had my, my share working some um, domestic terrorism cases. I worked on a 9-11 Flight 93 case. Um, so I covered leads on that. Um, and also, when I transferred to uh, the Columbia, South Carolina division, I ended up working a variety 
of cases, drugs, bank robberies, violent crimes, counter uh, terrorism, domestic terrorism. Um, so I had a, a, a pretty large, different and diverse background of working a lot of different violations. Okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure that the uh, people who are just now tuning in uh, to this particular episode who may not have known uh, and heard you guys' uh, episodes, uh, they can always go back and uh, listen to your episodes. But I just wanted to bring everybody up to current events. Uh, and for those who are listening, these two are also consulting producers. They have also helped book pretty much all the agents that we've had on the show. Uh, but today, I want to jump right into it. I want to jump into January 6th. I want to talk about this. There's, there's a couple of things I want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about before. And the reason I want to talk about uh, January 6th is because I'd like to start with, we'd like to try to figure out what went wrong and where it went wrong and why it should have never happened. You guys have both dealt with uh, terrorism on many levels. Um, and you, as you said, post 9-11, Right. So pre 9-11, what was different post 9-11 uh, versus pre 9-11 with regards to let's start with information and information sharing. Let's start there. Pre 9-11, you, you had federal agencies gathering information and working primarily their separate missions. There were oftentimes when there might have been overlap, and that was when oftentimes that information would be shared on that, as they said, on that uh, as-need-to-know basis. But then that's what developed what was called at that time informational silos. Each organization had its own silo, and then there was there was no uh, horizontal movement, only vertical movement of information. 9-11 forced that issue vis-a-vis uh, of, of other things, the creation of uh, homeland security. Uh, the, the, the creation of uh, the terrorism task force. They've always, they have been task forces in the past, gang task force and so, such, but post 9-11, they were more concentrated uh, on uh, going after uh, international uh, terrorism. Uh, domestic terrorism wasn't looked at as much at that time, but obviously now uh, that's where we've kind of evolved. So there's a uh better communication between all the different agencies now? Is that- it's not the best, uh, but there has been an evolution. Uh, obviously, that's part of the breakdown or, or part of the issue that uh, affected January 6th was there wasn't enough information that was shared. There's information that's out there. There was always information that was out there. The question is how much of it was shared, how much it was uh, taken seriously, how much it was acted on, how much it was not acted on. And, and that's part of all these different uh, uh, investigations and who's responsible, you know, where was the backstop? Uh, where did it stop? Right. So you're saying prior to 9-11, Homeland Security didn't exist is what you're saying. Homeland came as a as as, as a product out of 9-11 and the issues uh, that were happening around that time. So so how does that work then? Is Homeland Security the hub? Is that the, the, the center that all the information filters through now when it comes to... No, they're... they're <laughs> There are several. Uh, Homeland Security is only is only one of them. Uh, others have evolved uh, since that time because of the evolving. You know, we didn't we didn't deal a lot with cybersecurity at that time. So now you you have entities that uh, almost Homeland Security type uh, entities collaborating on cybersecurity. So it's it, it's it's a it's a living animal. There there's it never stops evolving. That's crazy. I mean. It, you know, you would you would imagine that we would have had these kind of things in place already, or or at least been you know prepared for some of this stuff. So the leads, where do they come from, and, and how do you go about following up, following up on them? Hey, Carl, before I before we, we we talk through about the leads, I wanted to just add one other thing to piggyback on what Don was saying.
right. after 9-11, mm-hmm. and I, I'm just speaking in terms of, of, of how it impacted the culture in the Bureau. Prior to that time, it was really the function of most of the street agents to um, cultivate information and intelligence and, and intelligence sharing from the street level. Every every one of us were tasked. In fact, we were even evaluated on our ability to intelligence gather. Post 9-11, what, what the Bureau took the position under, under Mueller was that we were going to now effectively change the mission slightly because we were historically a criminal investigative agency. I mean, that was the bread and butter of the FBI since J. Edgar Hoover days. That was that was our baby, criminal investigations. And all the intelligence that was gathered was gathered really from this, from confidential informants, cooperating witnesses, and the agents actually cultivated and, and obtained and gathered all that intelligence. The shift came after 9-11 is that the Bureau decided that they would become more of an intelligence gathering agency. Not that we would do away with criminal investigations, but that we would now direct and shift and reallocate a lot of our resources into when they started to develop what's called intelligence squads. So they had they had whole squads now formed and dedicated solely for the, the purpose of intelligence gathering. So in years past, Don and I would be we would be the intelligence gatherer. You know, we would be the ones out on the street getting information and that's how we gather intelligence. Then the ship came to actually come up with called the National Security Branch, and they they implemented intelligence squads and agents that their whole job was not to work investigative cases anymore. Their whole purpose was to go out and gather intelligence, pass that intelligence up through the national security branch, and then they disseminate that information out. You had two different bureaus. You had a, the traditional criminal investigative FBI, which Don and I were part of. We were a criminal investigation agent. Then you had the national security branch side of the house. They were tasked with intelligence gathering and national security efforts. So that's what really changed the bureau. Plus the advent of analysts, George. Right, and then we right, they brought in intelligence analysts who or support employees who supported the intelligence gathering and um, and they were embedded on our squads. And so that a lot of the the intelligence that Don and I and traditional uh, criminal investigative agents did in the past was now being moved to a different function. And so as you're talking about leads, a lot of those leads now were going away from the criminal investigators like Don and I, and they were going to another side of the house. It was supposed to be more efficient intelligence process, gathering process. And, and in a lot of respects, it, it was. Um, I think a lot of our intel people did a very, very good job about disseminating information. Okay, so now let's fast forward. We have all these all these things in play since 9-11. January 6th, what happened? Well, again, if you, I think if you read the report that came out last month, the Senate mm-hmm. Investigation Committee, Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a clearly a failure of communication and dissemination of intelligence up to the Capitol Police through Homeland. Obviously, in that report, they, they criticized the Bureau as well as all the, of the other um, agencies, um, Metropolitan Police and others. Um, I think 
If you read through the report, it makes clear that the Capitol Police were inequipped. Their officers weren't trained properly in civil disturbances. Uh, There was a lack of communication, lack of operational planning. And I think the the operational planning is something that's very critical. And and I don't want to pass this on to Don, but Don, as a SWAT member, has a lot of experience in operational planning, especially for high-risk scenarios like this, where clearly they were talking about protests and different groups coming to Washington, D.C. to protest the election certification. And you had extremist groups, and there was a lot of intelligence out there about them coming, showing up. And uh, maybe, Don, you can talk through um, typically what is involved when you have a scenario where you know there's going to be a confrontation and what type of planning goes into that you know, to try to protect against an assault on the Capitol like that. The, the, the planning that we had to address was extremely meticulous. Uh, it ran the gamut between who are the subjects? How big is the organization? Where are they headquartered? What sources do we have in place uh, that can give us information from the inside if we have them? Uh, are they going to be armed? Uh, what kind of armament? will they have? Uh, Will will this be uh, a static fight or is this going to be something? Is this going to be uh, a situation where we have to stop vehicles? Is the place that we have to hit, are there barricades in place that we may have to overcome, that we may have to breach? What about the perimeter? If we have to hit a place, we have to secure that perimeter, not just there, but we would have the locals assist us oftentimes because that was always a good partnership uh, to dealing with with the perimeter and uh, having our backs covered before we go to go into a place. And even with that, uh, there was always a situation that something could go south. You had to plan for the worst and hope for the best. So my heart was out to those Capitol Police officers. I- I'm surprised that there was only one shot fired. Let's just say that. Uh, and that and that was a shot that was inside the Capitol. I, I fully expected uh, something to really go south outside with as many weapons uh, that were there uh, that, as we found out later, or as, as it turns out later, that uh, some some of those uh, protesters had and, 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 and were ready to, uh, you know, to do harm. So th- there, were, there were a lot of things that could have been in consideration. Now, I'm not a, I can't I, I will never second guess because I was not there. Uh, but again, as George indicates, uh, the, the report was an in-depth examination into capital police uh, in terms of the disadvantages that they had to deal with in trying to even do what they were trying to do. Normally you're saying they would have been informed, well informed, and, you know, uh, dissemination of information would have been given to specific departments, different departments, where they've done this thorough type of, of, of investigation, like you said, uh, who, who is the threat? Um, how many are there, you know, um, you know, is it a real threat? Where, where is their organization headquarters? All the things that you mentioned, right? Correct. So, so we're 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 to um, we're to believe. Okay, first of all, who did this report? Who was the report done by? That the report is uh, was put out by it's a bipartisan Senate committee that published mm-hmm. a report last month, and so um, the the, the uh, Senate put this report out. Uh, and again, I know a lot's been said in the last couple of couple of weeks about there's a House investigation that's going to be commencing soon, but the Senate put out this report just last month based on their committee hearings that they had back in January. Now, this report is available for the public to see, yes? 
Correct. Yeah, you can you can Google it and uh, like I sent um I have a copy. I think I sent you got you guys copy. Okay. Do you really believe that they were really unprepared based on that report, or is this report another way of passing the buck in terms of who's at fault, who dropped the ball, where the ball was dropped? I think Carl, the, the two questions that I had as I watched it unfold on January sixth in my living room. The two major questions I had was, A, did law enforcement have enough advanced intelligence that there was going to be a protest, which clearly they did, because you have to file for a permit in order to to stage a protest like that. So clearly they knew this group was going to meet at, at wherever they met outside uh, down the street from the Capitol. Um, and there was enough social media, from what I understand, information out there. That's why that's why I'm like, so what? about this report. So what? The one thing that's going on right now is social media. And 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 you can't and if all these other agencies and all these things are in place with information gathering and and watching and so forth and so on. We I I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe that they didn't know this was going to happen. That they didn't know and have enough information to be prepared for this. I think everyone who's a, a objective person would ask that same question. And again, as Don said, it's difficult for us to second guess because we we were, we didn't have access to the information. But right. one of the things that is clear from the report is that there was as early as two weeks prior that the Capitol Police had intelligence that there was groups coming that were extremist groups that were coming to the Capitol. So my question is, and it was that day, okay, having known that, you can prepare for that. As Don says, prepare for the worst and hope for the Mm -hmm. best. Okay. Exactly. Not only that, where were the people who, now the protests happened hours before they marched down to the Capitol. So my question is, did they have intelligence officers at the protest who were listening in who were getting real-time information that they could have communicated to the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police and all law enforcement and even the National Guard to suggest that they were going to be coming down there. I mean, they have put intelligence people around large gatherings in the past. That's nothing new. In fact, that's very good investigation into intelligence gathering techniques. So my question is, where were those people? Because if someone was there, if I'm there and I'm hearing, hey, we're going to go down and storm the Capitol. Right. I, was, I think it would be incumbent upon them to get that information quickly out to the, the appropriate authorities and say, hey, this is this is not just imagine this is this has the potential to be a powder keg that can explode. And as Don said, in law enforcement, we are supposed to be more proactive now uh, vis-a-vis 9-11 then we used to be reactive. Reactive right. action is quicker than reaction. And so law enforcement sometimes, sometimes now, late. we're supposed to be more proactive than we are reactive. And right. so what appears here is that there was not enough proactive work and it forced the Capitol Police into a reactive situation that they clearly were not prepared for. In, it, in addition to George, uh, the report that George uh, indicated, the Capitol Police IG, uh, Michael Bolton, his report, which was it's actually law enforcement sensitive, but there are certain aspects of it that uh, were reported by the New York Times. And even in that report, uh, he had indicated, uh, or that report indicated the lack of preparedness uh, uh, that was there uh, on the part of the Capitol Police for different reasons. So, again, if you wish to direct 
the, uh, the listeners to research that. That's another source of information in terms of uh, another aspect of the report, which was, which was, which was just as critical. Uh, and, 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 you know, the IG, the inspectors generals, the, the, their jobs, uh, just as the Bureau has its own uh, aspects of IG, so, so the other agencies. Well, that report was also prepared and it was critical of the outcome, if you will. So if you're looking for another source of information, that's another one. Thank you for that, Don. So I, th- at the, I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it just, it definitely raises a lot of questions with regards to, you know, who's becoming the scapegoat here and, what, and who's passing the buck in terms of where the ball was dropped. If we assume based on the report and if we assume just to just to move forward, if we assume that they were, you know, that, that they didn't have enough information, that they didn't follow protocol anywhere along the lines to actually prepare for this, because it just seems to boggles my mind how when the threat is black, when there's a black person, such as Minister Farrakhan, when the perceived threat is a a group of black individuals who have, you know, let's say if it was Minister Farrakhan or let's say it was Black Lives Matter, uh, where, you know, none of the protests have been anywhere near that they're not talking about what they're going to do in terms of violence or anything like that, nonviolent protests. But with less notice, they've had more preparedness, if that's a word. I'm just going to, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to steal that from the uh, Don King book of words. Um, they've been more prepared in, in, in shorter amounts of times. Why, why is that, though? I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand how, how that happens. You know, uh, Minister Farrakhan, goes up to the Capitol. There's a whole, there's a whole national guard. There's, there's like, you know, you would think, you would think war was coming and he, and he, and he wasn't bringing a protest and he wasn't bringing 50,000 people with him, but they were ready, met him on the Capitol steps as if. So I need some explanation behind the two, the difference between the two. Well, he's not, he's not on social media. He's not having a protest uh, hours before saying what he's going to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Well, it's, it's easy to unconfuse it when you ask yourself the same question. Why is it that a black kid your daughter, my son, can be stopped by a white police officer, and that white police officer is ready to pull his or her weapon before they get to the car, versus that of someone of another you, where their reaction to that police officer coming to the car is far more egregious, and we see nothing happen. So what's the difference there? You just talked about different levels. Right. And we see it. And I, think, I think that's where this gets really interesting, Carl. And, and of course, look, this is no secret. Everyone, all of us have asked the same question in the aftermath of January 6th. Even in that day, you had a lot of people coming on, analysts on TV talking about the, the you know, what if this were a black crowd? Um, and I look, we all know, we all have seen the history of of, of how race has impacted the reaction of law enforcement uh, in this country. It, this is not a surprise to any of us. And I think that's, therein lies the problem of why we were talking about just previously how important it is to have diverse black and brown voices in uh, speaking into these situations from a leadership standpoint, especially in law enforcement. You know, this is the problem that we have in law enforcement. This is a problem that we'll have in every aspect of our culture from the C-suite and corporate 
corporations, on board of directors, to, to the military, to, to law enforcement. If we don't have the diverse voices and people who have seats at the table and leadership positions, you're going to continue to get this, this dichotomy of a response based on skin color and, and a lack of objective voices that can that can speak into a situation. So, for instance, you know, if intelligence came in and you had someone uh, with a diverse background um, and they got social media information about this, they may they they may make a leadership decision that was different than what happened on January 6th because they may take the, the threat more seriously and, and treat it as a real credible threat. And those, unfortunately, we just don't know you know, who who knew what, when and where to make the, that decision. But what was very apparent is it was definitely a different reaction on 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 the fact of, of who these people were and their skin color versus people of color. For instance, just the before that, I mean if you remember uh, the, the protests post George Floyd, those protesters had tear gas put on them when the president wanted to come out and make his uh, walk down to the church and hold the Bible upside down. They cleared out those. Those people were pre- peacefully protesting. They weren't they weren't storming the Capitol or, or trying. And, and, and yet, you know, the reaction was different, it was drastically different. They had they had a show force out there. They turned they turned them away. They put tear gas on them, whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, so the president and, and the AG and everyone could have their, their photo op. And so when when we look at those scenarios, you know, you have to look at them and go, wait, there's something wrong with this picture. Right. I mean, if you're a real objective person and you're looking at that, you're going, there's, we've treated this. We treated the same scenario so differently. You can't walk away from it other than to know that this is an issue of race. Which is why it's it's extremely hard to swallow the rhetoric that there was just a, a, a breakdown in communication or a lack of funneling the information. That's that's extremely hard to swallow. If there were somebody there. At, at the at the rally before they marched down, just by looking at the composition of the crowd, okay, there were people dressed in military gear with zip ties, exactly okay? with guns, let, things like that. Yeah. Now I'll let Don talk about. You know, the only reason why you're carrying a zip tie, tell them, Don, why SWAT members carry zip ties, right? Because you're getting ready to restrain somebody. What I'm saying, Carl, is your assessment is is spot on. You know, if you had some intelligence people there. And you looked over that crowd and you looked at what they were wearing and you and that's part of the intelligence gathering process. You have a police officer. When I was, I was standing there, I would have called somebody if I well, wasn't just me, a regular cop. Sometimes the question is, what did we know and what did we not know? We may not know that there may have been an intelligence gatherer out there. So your your assumption is that may, you know if you assume that maybe there wasn't, but even if there was, then what was what was their mission set? You know, it, you're there. So yeah, so so that's the, one of the answers that we still don't know yet. I mean, certainly Georgia and I don't know that answer. If there was someone there, if there was someone or someone's there, it, it would be on record somewhere. It should or, be. It should be. It's not hard to trace whether or not they were there or not because it should be on record and there was enough video phones and cameras around. You know, there's there's, there's ways of getting that information, period, number one. And like you said, so if there were, and like you said, so if there were, what was their mission to begin with? What was their, you know, and, 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 and then we have to ask the question, then whose side were they on? Well, you know, that that's the, the issue is if someone was there and if they made an observation 
And quite honestly, Carl, you know, and, and Don and I have both done this. We've been on surveillance before and you have to keep a surveillance log. So there should be written information that if I'm on surveillance, I have to record the time I start. And then I have to record very substantive events that occur that I see and I have to chronicle them and I have to make a report of them. And so what was difficult for me to, to digest is that if there was, and again, of course, we Don and I don't know, but assuming that there was some officers there, either there or even as they were marching down, right? I mean, you've got how many thousand people marching from a protest site down towards the Capitol, and you know they're going there because the president told them to go there. And so you would assume then that law enforcement officers would have been along that route and making additional intelligence observations. That should all be recorded somewhere. And hopefully, if the House does a full, thorough investigation uh, and pulls those reports, if, if they exist, then hopefully we'll get some answers to those questions. And not to mention that Again, equipment-wise, they were just really uh, ill-equipped, the the, the Capitol Police. And and, and again, going back to, uh, you know, and here's here's a a great example. The Bureau, even the high-level SWAT team, years ago before we had to deal with the shootout down in Miami where agents were killed. Our agents were outgunned at that time uh, because we were still using revolvers. While the bank robbers in that Miami shootout, and you can feel free to check that out. You know, they had automatic weapons, so we we were, and that forced the bureau to take a look at. We we need to change how we're doing this. Uh, we we can't afford this. So fast forward to now, once again, uh, you you had Capitol Police that didn't seem to have the equipment that they needed to have, uh, because, I, I thank God again. They, they they would have or could have been outgunned, but nevertheless, what kind of you know the the radios, the intel, the combo, all, all those things that are integratable to allow your guys and gals to 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 do their mission that that wasn't there, and that was also part of the report. They they were ill equipped. That's the most important thing in any kind of operation. You have to have good comms. You don't have good communication, and that's a recipe for disaster. And again, that's all part of the the, the operational plan, and we call the op plan. Uh, you have to have a, a communication. You have to have a contingency plan, which I don't know that they had one, uh, other than you know, in fact, the report even criticized them that they didn't even have the, the, the chief of the Capitol Police did not even have the authority to call in a national guard. They didn't have a, a memorandum of understanding or, or a policy in place that authorized him to even do that, which, you know, I don't understand, but I'm sure they're going to fix that. They should have called some from Southeast. I look at the correlation of the State of the Union every year. The State of the Union that takes place right there at the Capitol, that is what you call a high-level national security event. Everybody is involved, and you have command posts not just in Capitol, in the Capitol building, there are command posts, you know, the command posts at headquarters, Secret Service is involved, everyone is involved. So when I, when I look at the magnitude of that type of operation and the preparedness that goes into that, and it is an outstanding preparation because George and I have done them, my being on the NJTTF, that was one of our major operations that we had participation in. But when I look at the correlation between how the preparedness is, is done for that, knowing full well now you have this situation, which is not someone uh, in the Capitol giving speeches, but you know that there is a 
major threat that's impending out there. No matter what, no matter the magnitude, you, you've had the intel. I don't know how much of the interagency cooperation or collaboration was involved with that. That's huge. And to, to George's point. Don, do you know whether there was even a command post established? Because typically you would have a command post set up in advance. I was positioned, I'm, I'm a, I was a hostage negotiator. Don was on SWAT. I would always go out with SWAT in case there was a hostage scenario that developed. But like when we used to, we, we were assigned to the RNC in New York and Manhattan at the Javits Center, we were there for a whole week, you know, and SWAT was doing routine setup, assaults, bus assaults, you know, all kind of stuff. So, you know, we, we know what goes into these kind of preparations. And that's why it boggles my mind that I'm like, where was the command post? Where was the, you know, the, the situational preparedness for this? And I guess that gets back to your question is a head scratcher, Carl. And I don't blame you because I'm scratching my head, too. I'm like, you know, why wasn't that in place? What made this group of people uh, not become a, a threat to rise to the level where you would have these normal preparations in place? And so it's very easy for anyone to be skeptical of why this happened and was it politically motivated? I can absolutely understand where you're coming from. I mean, it, you would have to assume, not even assume, but speculate that it was it was more than just politically motivated. Um, so so let's let's go back to one thing: the video that went viral of the uh, black officer who was once they breached and they were coming up the stairs. How do you think he handled that situation? Outstanding. A lot more restraint than I would have. Hello. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing. Let's keep it 100, gentlemen. Let's keep it 100. Well, I have really asked myself the question of, and I hate to second guess those guys, and and I wasn't there. Um, But when I look at deadly force policies, right, and Don, very familiar with deadly force policies, you know, our deadly force policy is that if you feel that there's an imminent threat, that your life is in danger or the danger of others, uh, lives are in danger, you you can articulate the use of, of deadly force clearly to me. When civilians are, are assaulting police officers over the head with flags or whatever object that they have, to me, my life is in imminent danger, you know, because you could incapacitate me and take my weapon. And now not only is my life in jeopardy, but the life of my colleagues is in jeopardy because you could take my gun and you can kill me and you can also kill my colleagues. And so that's how you can articulate um, deadly deadly force. The fact, I, I agree with Don, I, I don't know, and I commend those guys for their restraint. But again, we get back to what if the crowd were different? Would they exercise the same restraint uh, if there were black and brown people who were beating those officers over the head with flags and, and breaching the, the Capitol? And let's talk about the Capitol for a minute and, wh- and what was going on there. You have the second highest, most powerful person in the United States of America in the vice president, Mike Pence, there. Speak on it. That's number one. And you have you have the the most powerful people in our entire country in our legislative branch there. And by there should never, ever be a scenario where that capital should be breached. Never. And, you know, I certainly think they could have used deadly force. Uh, I'm glad that more lives were not lost. However, uh, again, we raised the question. I think my man was very restrained in what he did. And, and you know, I don't know if he was trying to get them away from the, the rest of the, the, the um, senators and, and congresspeople. But I look at 
use of force in that scenario, man, because I feel like if I were him, my life was in jeopardy. Yeah, that's why I said on that day, I'm I'm shocked that there was only one shot that was fired. I'm, I'm really shocked because I, I just as you all said, the, the propensity for what could have jumped off was huge. And as you said, extremely justifiable based upon the violence that had been perpetuated at that point against the officers. You know what you know what I thought about when I saw it and when I watched it? I thought about a couple of things. Obviously, you think about what you would do in that situation, as you guys did, as most Americans or anybody in that position would probably think, you know, especially if they're black, right? Secondly, I thought to myself, why did he react that way? Is it one, because he felt like, what would the repercussions be if he did act in the way that he was supposed to act? Number one. Number two, that he didn't have any backup if he did act in the way that he was supposed to act. Where was his backup? Those are the questions that came to my mind. Like he probably thought to himself, man, if I start shooting these white people, then what's going to happen to me? Even though I'm well within my right. Number two, if I do, who going to back me up as I go up these stairs? Where am I going? Who going to back me up? I think that, and, and I could be wrong, but if, if I recall, I know he, and, and certainly that, as you mentioned, you know, for him to think about pulling his weapon, you can rest assured that was on his mind. Okay. The, 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 you know, that, that option. But as I recall, the end game was he was trying to lead them to the place where the backup took place. Uh, at least that's what I recall how that ended. When he finally got to the place where he ended up, there were those that had apparently, I believe they had the long guns at that point. He took a calculated risk, uh, but he was squared away in his thought process. He remained extremely calm under the circumstances. I mean, under, under chaos. So, so he, he deserves all the freaking accolades that he can get and more. What should the black arm of the law have done? <laughs> I've asked myself that question, you know, uh, many times. I was like, man, what would I have done? If You know, uh, every time I see the video of the officers outside trying to hold the line and hold those guys off, man, and and, and, and the, the rioters and insurrectionists, and that's what they, they, they are, were beating these guys over the head and strangling them, crushing them. I'm just thinking of, man, they'd be trying to get my gun. I don't know, Don. That's that's what I was thinking. Like, yeah. you doing that to they me? They tried. They tried I'm to get like, Some of them tried to get I'm going to drop people, okay? I'm trying to go home. I don't know what they're going to do. They got zip ties, you know? I mean, again, I'm glad, thank God, that we didn't lose any more lives than the lives we lost. Mm -hmm. But now, now, here's a question, Carl. You mentioned law enforcement, but again, the law is not written by law enforcement. The law is written by those that write the law. And why has it taken so long to to debt for the these rioters, these particular militias that are out there and obviously again that's what was there because remember it didn't january 6th was the aftermath of what happened in michigan that already happened michigan was a dry run in my mind for the capital but to to, to get to the point where now why is it has it taken so long for that domestic terrorist designation to be placed where it needs to be squarely placed which now gives the bureau uh, a, a, a better 
uh, leverage in terms of those types of investigations because that wasn't there before. I'll tell you, here's another interesting nugget. I went back and read the Director of National Intelligence, okay, reports pertaining to the election. This is pre, pre-election pre reports. And all the, the Director of National Intelligence, all their intelligence briefings were focused on foreign countries trying to impact or influence our election. What I find interesting in all that is that so much time and attention in our intelligence community was placed on whether China or, or, or Russia were going to try to influence our election, that it almost seems as if they ignored the threat right next door. And it's been already um, circulated very broadly that white supremacy, according to Director Ray of the FBI, is the number one domestic terroristic threat in our country. Yet, the Director of National Intelligence focused on foreign threats to our election, and no emphasis, very, or I should say very little emphasis, was placed on the domestic threat of white supremacists or those who were um, talking about potential of coming down to assault the Capitol. So it's ironic to me that the focus of the intelligence community up until January 6th was on foreign interference and not on domestic white supremacists terrorists. And now I hear that they're they're taking, uh, which is a, a, a topic for another show, but how they're taking it out of uh, teaching these things in school, you know, how they're not even uh, going to, um, as you say, uh, recognize white supremacy or that it would be, uh, you know, or the KKK as being a quote-unquote terrorist group organization or a supremacist organization. we got a lot of work to do, gentlemen. we got a lot of work to do. It's a big, big issue now where there's a big pushback on this whole issue of whether there's systemic racism in America. Well, expl- explain to the listeners who may not understand or know what race theory is. Well, critical race theory has been around for almost 40 years. It was developed by a law professor um, back in like 1980. Basically, um, it's it's an examination of legislative policies that have perpetuated a system of systemic oppression and, and racism in our country, going all the way back to 1619, the slavery. And so that's really at the heart of what critical race theory talks about. Now, there are those who are trying to change the narrative to suggest that we suggest that all white people are racist. And, and of course, that, you know, America has had a practice of systemic racism. But they're, they're trying to change the narrative to make it seem like, you know, trying to make all white people feel guilty and feel bad about themselves and they don't want it being taught in school. And so that narrative is really, there's a lot of misinformation about CRT. I just encourage people to really do their homework and read up on it and get the facts about it uh, rather than listening to talking heads on certain news shows who are trying to provide misinformation. Well said. All right. Last words, gentlemen. Last thoughts, Don. As you said, we have a lot to do, but uh, again, I I mentioned this when we had our first podcast, I am encouraged. I am really encouraged uh, about the the nature and the posture of though the young folks that are coming through that are overwhelmingly becoming and have become more engaged, more aware, more politically involved. Uh, that it it has folks up in Capitol Hill that have had the reins for so long has them shaken, and I'm not surprised to see all the different types of tactics that are purely obvious 
to try to quell that storm that's coming because it's it's not going to be stopped. Uh, that tidal wave uh, of change is not going to be uh, stopped by uh, the tactics that we are seeing in terms of moving the goalposts or or moving the goalposts further down or, or taking the goalposts down and putting a new one up. So I'm I'm, I'm encouraged to see our, our, our young folks doing that of all different walks of life. That is reassuring to me that uh, changes uh, not are going to come, but have come. Yeah, and, uh, and to piggyback up a dime, uh, Carl, I just want to thank you for for leading the charge in this conversation. You know, it's a difficult one, uh, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, you know, we, uh, I've said it before, I'm, I'm praying that, you know, the people who are listening to the, to the podcast, especially the young people that Don talked about, you know, we, we need more representation. We need more, more, we need more folks in law enforcement at every level, local, state, county, federal, um, who are in a position to, to make uh, very objective leadership decisions that are to the benefit of everybody, to all people. Um, and, and you, you've been leading the charge, man. I thank you for your, your, you know, your dedication to, to the, to getting this message out. Um, you know, Don and I are two OGs, man. We, you know, our ride's over, you know, but the only thing we can do is encourage young brothers and sisters to get out there, be a part of the system. It's okay. You know, a lot of people just, just get on me and say, oh man, you went, you sold out, G, you went out, worked for the man. I'm like, no, I didn't sell out because if I can be in a position that I can help people and I have, um, and, and, and we can, we can we can create a level playing field and we can make justice look like what it's supposed to look like. The only way we're going to do that is we have to be part of the process. You got to be part of the, 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 the you know, the, the solution, not the problem. And so um, I, I just hope and pray, man, that people will, will take us up on that, get in the game and uh, make a difference. You know, and uh, I, I think, Carl, listening to you, man, hopefully you, you got a lot of you got way more you way more influential than Don and I. You got more likes than we do. bro. So, uh, <laughs> more followers than we do. Don't rile Ken up. Please don't rile Ken up. He's about to unmute his phone. Don't do it. Listen. Man, but seriously, the, the, this has been a great experience. The podcast is the, the conversations have been challenging and they should be. Progress is not made by com- being complacent. We don't make progress that way. You, we, again, we have to be proactive, not reactive. And hopefully we can make a difference. I'll tell you what, man, you guys have already made a difference uh, because you definitely have uh, inspired me as well. Because had it not been you and it was someone else. I know a lot of the run-ins and altercations and a lot of the things that you you guys have done uh, could have gone a, a completely different way. So some of those individuals that you've dealt with. Um, so and that journey and that experience has has got you to where we are here today. And we're still on this journey. It ain't over yet. Uh, thank you, too. Uh, thank you, too, for being a part of this process and being a part of this journey. Thank you, brother. Likewise. Carl. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production.
the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details.